Today in our scripture reading, we come to the third chapter. It's taken us a while. The third chapter of the book of Ephesians, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 13. So let's stand because we are going to be hearing uh, the word of our heavenly Father. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of, of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the work of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. And this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Uh, yesterday morning, I had this incredible privilege of being able to speak at the memorial service for Steve Lazarian, who has been such a longtime member of our church. His life has made a difference here in many of our lives, in our church, in our city, and really all around the world. Perhaps you were here, and perhaps, or perhaps you heard that Dr. John Perkins was also here, who also God has used in our church and in my life and in, in this city and all around the world. And he brought us a powerful message from God's Word and also a beautiful eulogy about how God had used Steve as a mentor in his own life in those years. It was, it was a tremendous thing. I, I seized the opportunity uh, to talk with Dr. Perkins and to reminisce with him about the very first time I had ever met him. Uh, that was 23 years ago. He and I both remembered it. It was my first year of being the president at Trinity International University back on the North Shore in Chicago. I remember we met him that first semester that I was there and we had lunch together. So I began to share with him what God had put in my heart. Um, 
what I've been preaching to you about from the book of Ephesians, because this is the book that God really used in my own life to grip my heart about what the church, a local church, should be. Namely, that God has had, Ephesians 1, an eternal plan to bring together one household of faith that would be made up in this one family of people as different as Jew was from Gentile back in the first century. Indeed, God wants to bring together people from every people, language, and national group, all of us united in Christ. And I remember I talked about, John was shocked that I had this on my heart. I told him of my conviction that any family or church or university that declared that Jesus is the Lord of that place must be committed to being a place where the walls that separate people from people come down and we actually show the world in this unexpected family of God, I mean unexpected in the eyes of the world, the glory of God. And I just remember saying to him, this has been on my heart since I was a teenager, but I, I don't know exactly how to get from kind of the state of where things are to where God promises they will be. How can we, as our series is called, become who we are, what God has declared, this is what we will be. Do you have any advice for me, I said. And if you know him, you know that he did. <laughs> so he said to me, and as I reminded him, he said, oh, I remember saying this to you very, very well. He said to me, Greg, that, that vision is biblical. And since God has put that on your heart, you're going to have to, in the role that God has put you, share that vision every time you get a chance. You need to do it with the students at every chapel that you speak. You need to do it with your trustees. You need to do it at faculty meetings. You even need to do it with your donors. Um, you have to do it from different aspects and, or, or they'll get bored by it, but just keep that in front of people all the time. Then, when there are big decisions to make, make decisions that lead in that direction of where God is taking us. And he said, um, there will be some pushback because if this is from God, the kingdom of God always clashes with the kingdoms of this world, but keep going. God is greater than the kingdom of this world and he will do more than you could ever Imagine. I'll tell you that that conversation uh, came back to my mind this past week, partly because of the text that I just read to you, and partly because I knew I'd be meeting with, uh, with Dr. Perkins again. Because it's clear to me when I read the book of Ephesians that Paul was gripped by the fact that in Christ, an eternal plan of God was, was kicking into action that all people, as divided as you were from the Gentile, would, would be able to be together in one family. So I feel like in these first two chapters that we've been going through for the past number of weeks, Paul was doing exactly what Dr. Perkins told me to do. He was talking about that same theme over and over again, but he was giving different aspects of it. And I feel like when we come to today's chapter, Paul was anticipating some pushback from the people in his church Seems like he heard them, and that brings us to chapter 3, verse 1. Got to look at that. Paul was beginning to pray, knowing that we needed to pray, and it seems like as he began, he seemed to sense that, that there were some of the people who weren't exactly in agreement with being in this one church, Jew and Gentile, together. I thought, did somebody shout out in the middle of the sermon, and he has to break in, because he breaks his sentence, or, or did he get an email well, maybe he didn't. I, I'm not sure. But, but the, he interrupted his thoughts. 
So look at what, he's, what happens in verses one to two with me. For this reason, and he's talking about that God has brought us into one household of faith, passage that precedes it, one temple in which God, for this reason, he says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, Oh, oh, surely you have heard about this administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. You see, he breaks in mid-sentence there, and it's not because I, I think Paul had ADD. I don't think that's, that's why he did this. No, it seems to me that before he prays, there is a very important point that he wants to make, and I think we need to listen to it. I hope you will. He wanted them to know that he was in prison and that's where he was and he wrote this, precisely because he preached this message both to Jew and Gentile. Um, the reason, many think that the reason why Paul was in prison at this particular time can be found in a story in Acts chapter 21. So if you want to read that sometime, you can. Uh, Paul was there and he'd already been preaching to Gentiles and hanging out with Gentiles. So there in Jerusalem one day, apparently he was hanging out with a Gentile man named Trophimus. Have any of you named your children Trophimus? I, I don't recommend it. But he was hanging out with him maybe at the local Starbucks or whatever they had there in, in Jerusalem, and people saw him, and they just assumed that Paul was going to take Trophimus there into the temple and there's a section where the Gentiles could, send, could, could go. Remember, we talked about that last week, the court of the Gentiles. And they just assumed that he just took him right across that dividing wall of hostility and into the place where Trophimus shouldn't have been. And so they became angry, and Paul was, was sitting in a prison. Now, they assumed wrong. He hadn't done that. But, but the, the accusation had been taken carefully. And already, I'm going to pause for just a moment. I thought maybe this is a time where we need to just stop for a moment and think about what happens when accusations come within the life of a church and, and we have to decide whether they're true or not. I mean, we've been facing that in our country, right? We've watched our country try to walk through that and it's been clumsy at best, do you think? So I've just thought, okay, God's planted us here and we're gonna have that happen here at our church too. Let's just know that. Uh, accusations come, so how will we find our space and do this sort of thing in a way that honors God? And I'll just tell you, take this down, mark it down for when it happens within us, among us. Uh, there are two sets of commands that the Bible gives to us. Uh, on one side, we have to listen to people when they feel like a wrong has happened. We must listen with empathy and carefulness especially when it's a person who perhaps is not on the very, you know, the most powerful place in the life of the church because the Bible gives these commands like in Proverbs chapter 31 verses 8 through 10 that the only way to have a community where justice and righteousness reign is whenever those who actually have a voice are willing to listen and speak for those who have no voice at all. So on one side, you see that we have a responsibility, and sometimes I don't think churches have done that because we hear all the stories about things that have happened. It's not just in the Catholic Church, but in so many other churches of things that happened in the church, accusations have come and they were ignored. We can't do that. But on the other side, there's a whole set of commands and directions that the Bible gives that are thoroughgoing in the Bible, and that is when an accusation comes, it must be supported by two or three witnesses. 
It's in the very earliest parts of the Bible. It's in Deuteronomy 19, I think it's verse 18. Already there, Jesus took it up in Matthew chapter 18. When it happens in a church and there are disputes, he says, make sure that there are two or three witnesses that happen. It happens with Paul when he writes to a church in Corinth and there were disputes like this happening. In chapter 13, he says, make sure that when you walk through those times uh, that there are two or three witnesses. It happens when in a personal letter to young Timothy, the pastor in First uh, Timothy, in which some pastors and, and elders were being accused of things. He says, make sure that you give a hearing, but at the same time that there are two or three witnesses. And it even happens in the book of Revelation where God establishes his tr- truth by having more than one witness. So it seems like we have these two principles that sometimes are really hard to navigate together. But I pray that when they happen here, that we'll be able to walk in wisdom together and be guided by God's truth together in ways that that show the world ways that we can work through things like this. So Paul, though, here, had been unjustly accused. And in spite of that, he he was sitting in a prison. Now, I want you to notice what he did not do. He did not take on what I call, I've called that Eeyore spirit. Oh, woe is me, you know, I'm, I'm an apostle, and I'm faithful to it, and every time I go out there, I get stones thrown at me, and I get thrown into prison, and all these. He didn't do that. And, and also, he didn't become uh, angry and, and, and frantic, sending out an SOS. You've got to pray and demand that God do something, whether he wants to do it or not. Name it and claim it that God will get me out of this prison right now. He didn't do that. What did he do? Well, he wrote a letter (laughs) to his people, but in that letter, he gave them lessons, simple, clear lessons about how to live for God when things happen to you like were happening to Paul being put in a prison unjustly because in this imperfect world, those things are going to happen, mark it down. And Paul teaches us to do something that only genuine Jesus followers are going to be able to do. Namely, we look at everything that happens in light of the fact that God is here, God God is central in our lives. We're going to try to be faithful to him no matter what we do, right? So what does he say? What does he say? Let me walk it through with you. Number one, when these things happen, don't be discouraged, but listen. Know that God is at work in this world. He's not distant. God is involved in history. So when things happen to you, that's not outside of what God is doing. Learn to be faithful to his calling, whether those are in good times or in difficult times like Paul was in. So he says, you have heard, it's chapter 3, verse 2, about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. The administration means you've heard what God's called me to do. (laughs) And he's done it really for you. So Paul was in a prison. But that did not mean that that was outside the will of God. Sometimes don't we think that way when hard times come? What did I do wrong? Far from it for Paul. Reading through verses two through six, and I hope you heard it when I was reading it. He says, really what's happening here even with me being in a prison so that I could bring the gospel to you, is the unfolding of a mystery that God has had in his mind forever. But we have not been able to see exactly what God has done. Now, this mystery 
which means there are some things that God knew that he hadn't made known, but he's going to reveal to us. It, it wasn't a complete mystery that Jew and Gentile were going to come to get, be blessed because all the way back in the earliest days of the founding of the people of Israel, all the way back to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, in calling Abraham, God said to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. And your people, the people of Israel, they're going to become a blessing to all people groups in this world. And, and that point that people of Israel somehow would be used to be a blessing to all peoples was affirmed again and again in the Old Testament texts. So they knew that something was going to happen through them that would bring blessing to all peoples. They just didn't know how, how it was going to happen. And that's what has now been made known in Christ and what Paul was especially uh, given information about, that in Christ, that's how God would bring blessing to all people groups in Christ. With the coming of Jesus, God himself would come into this world. He, he would live that life that fulfilled the requirements of the law. Do you remember last week's message? The law required that if you're going to be in the presence, eternal presence of God, you've got to keep the law perfectly, and nobody could do it. But God was going to come into this world. And, and he was going to live that life that the law required. And then he was going to be willing to die the death we deserve on the cross and then defeat sin thereby and death itself thereby through his resurrection so that now through faith in Jesus, the opportunity to come into the family of God is made available to all people, to all people. Who's in the all? I ask that often. Are you in that? And if you have missed it, look at chapter 3, verse 6. Paul said, here's the mystery. The mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, together members of one body and sharers in the promises of Christ Jesus. So you see, God had called Paul specifically to make that beautiful message known the Gentiles, you're welcome in the family of God through faith in Jesus. And it was because he was faithful to that calling that he was in a prison. You saw how he spoke about it. I, I think we've probably read these verses so often that they don't astound us anymore. I'll, I'll try to astound you a little bit. Verse 1, he calls himself a prisoner of Christ. He doesn't call himself a prisoner of Rome. Being there, he says, I'm a prisoner of Christ. And if you miss it, chapter 3, verse 6, I am a slave of the gospel. I'm enslaved as a gift. What kind of gift is that? <laughs> I'm enslaved as a gift of God's grace. I'm not a slave of Caesar. See, what Paul had learned was that when he, he recognized that Jesus had to die for him so that he could have eternal life, he says, I'm not going to live for myself anymore. I live for him. My life is his. Same thing the apostle Peter had learned, and in those beautiful verses, 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19, he said, who are we? Who are we? We are bought with a price. Brothers and sisters, that's who we are. We're bought people. Very expensive we are. <laughs> the precious blood of Jesus. So that you and I, we're no longer our own so I, I hope you see what I'm getting at here. The Apostle Paul had been called by his Lord, Jesus, 
to declare the gospel to the Gentiles, and the people who didn't want that declared to them had made it so that he had to go to prison. But since he was following the Lord Jesus, and Jesus was his Lord, he was going to obey Jesus no matter what it cost. Because I can just feel like in our society, we, we keep thinking if we do things right, God is going to make sure everything goes smooth, right? What is the Apostle Paul doing in a prison? He should be in a five-star hotel on the big island of Hawaii. He must have done something wrong. But Paul says, no, no. Just, just look at what he has said. I'm the least of all God's people. I was one out there actually killing God's people. I was dead in my own life. God loved me anyway, and through his grace, through faith in Jesus, he made me alive to him and brought me into the family, and he's given me this calling that my life can really matter. It can still matter in spite of all of my failings. I get to call people and tell all people, you can be a God's family through faith in Jesus. It is a gift of grace. So, if God sends me to prison to do it, I'm going to do it. And do you know how many of Paul's letters were written from a prison? I mean, God used this time in a prison to do more than he could have ever imagined. Okay, if you had been in prison, I keep thinking, what would I have written to you if I had got slapped into prison because of some false accusation? I think I would write to you, say, Doing every, do everything you can to get me out of here. Paul didn't even pray that. It's like he wasn't even interested in it. I'll, I'll pull you ahead a couple of chapters here. Look at chapter 6, verses 18 to 19, and what Paul asked them to pray for. Pray for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, that I'll simply do what God has called me to this place to do. See what he's saying here. He's saying, listen, when the tough times come, know that God is still there. It's not outside of his sovereign will. And I'll just tell you, brothers and sisters, when you follow Jesus, you will sometimes find yourself in a very challenging place but I want you never to despair. I want to tell you he will be with you and he will ask you in that place to be faithful to him and to give witness to him. So I have a prayer that I often pray early in the morning, especially when I know I'm gonna go into something I don't wanna do. <laughs> I'll put it up here for you. Lord, where I go today may not be where I want to go, but my life is now yours. So wherever you send me, I will go as your servant and give witness to you with my words and my life. It's that viewing every appointment as a divine appointment. You've heard me talk about this so often, and it comes from this point when you have a God-centered worldview. You don't think that those difficult things are outside of his providence. You want to be faithful wherever he puts you. Second, God has an end in mind that he will accomplish. And that end that God has in mind and that he will accomplish is good. So live each day with a view toward that end. Look at verses 10 and 11. God's intent, he says, here, here's where God is going with this, was that through the church, his manifold wisdom should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. 
And all of this is according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. What he's doing here is exactly what Dr. Perkins told me to do, to always keep my focus on what God is doing, where God is leading his people, keep that in front of those under my care, and always live in light of God's ability to do what he promises to do. I don't want you to miss it in verse 10. Paul speaks about there being spiritual realities that go beyond physical realities. Did you notice that? He talks about these, these spiritual powers and authorities in the heavenlies. What's he talking about there? He's talking about this thing that I often speak to you about, namely when you're born again, as Jesus said we must be, you're made alive to a whole world of reality that we don't see with our physical eyes and get at it with our senses. Some of those are in opposition to God. Other angelic authorities are there. But apparently, uh, this mystery of what God is doing wasn't uh, angels and these authorities. They don't know the future perfectly. They, they have to have it revealed. And, and in fact, 1 Peter 1.12, Peter said, angels long to look into the things that we're now experiencing in Christ. As I look at it, it, it seems like that what he's saying is something like this, that when people walked away from God in Genesis chapter three, and these spiritual beings watched this, they said, what's going on here? Those people made in God's image want nothing to do with God, what's going on here? And then they saw people being broken and, uh, from one another too. And over these centuries, they saw the divisions and all the fighting and all the darkness that is there in this world, and it made no sense to them. But then when Christ came, and then when the church began to happen, the, the coin dropped. It seems like Paul is saying, the aha moment happened as the angels started saying, now in Christ, people made in God's image, broken from God, are being made right with God. Now people made in God's image, broken from one another, are coming together. When they saw Jew and Gentile worshiping in one body there in Ephesus, they said, this is the work of God. He's reconciling all things to himself in Christ when they see us doing it. That's the same thing that happens. Our worship and life together declares to the entire universe the manifold wisdom of God. Isn't that an, anybody amazed by that? It is a call to us to live in that unity together. I love the word manifold wisdom. You know what that word means? I bet you. It means multicolored. It's, it's the word that, that is used in the Old Testament for Joseph's coat of many colors. I'm just telling you, I, I really like that. <laughs> that. Uh, this is a multicolored wisdom that is of God when you see people of every tribe, language, and nation serving and worshiping God together. So I, I love it. I, Gentile and Jew in one body. Wow, in Ephesus. African and European. Can, can those two groups come together? Asian and Central American. Can we possibly worship together? All together, declaring together the wisdom of our Father. I mean, all, all this is to say to us that when we as a church face challenges, 
in figuring out what God would have us to do when we have marriages broken, families broken, when we're even wrestling with different things with one another, we need to keep our eyes on that eternal plan of God and always take steps in that direction and always be those who are the makers of peace, not just the keepers of peace, which is really hard to make peace and hold on. And he says, when this happens, God will be pleased and be at work. So I'll tell you, when the tough times come, I think we can be guided as a church by keeping our eyes on the fact that God is at work and will accomplish his plan. I I preached about this a number of years ago, and Irene Leone sent me a wonderful card. I keep it on my desk. I love looking at it. I put it here for you so you can see it. Everything will be okay in the end. If it's not okay, it's not the end. Amen. (laughs) Then third, then third. God makes us alive to these eternal things. Learn to value them, the eternal things, more than you value temporary things. Verses 12 and 13. In Christ Jesus, through faith in him, something eternal happens. We may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. So again, Paul was in prison, but it wasn't in spite of his faith. It was because of his faith in Jesus. But do you see it? He's not discouraged, not in the least. And do you know why? Because when he met Jesus, his entire value system was overhauled. So he's not discouraged in prison, and why? Because even though he lost all sorts of things, I mean, he couldn't be with his church friends, he couldn't be with his family anymore, who knew where that would lead, but still for him, the things that he really, really mattered could not be taken away from him. Even by a prison cell, he could, in that prison, approach God with freedom and confidence. What amazes me when I read this is that Paul is encouraging the Ephesian believers. I asked myself, which one is in prison here? (laughs) But basically what Paul was saying is, let me tell you what I'm after now with my life. What I want to do with my life now is to know Jesus. I want to please Jesus, this one who died for me, the one who gave me the privilege of telling others this mystery of how all people can come into the family of God. So I'll do that wherever he sends me. Nothing can take that away from me. So if in doing that, you know, I succeed in the eyes of the world and I I get to preach about who Jesus is and what he does and get to do it in this huge worship center at 393 North Lake Avenue, Pasadena, California, then whoopee, what could be better than that? (laughs) But you see it. He says, "If, if, if I'm slapped into a prison, I'm just going to do the same thing there too. You see, wherever I am, what really matters can't be taken away from me. A little bit of time in a prison is nothing compared to the eternal purposes of God and what being here can contribute to if I'll only give witness to him. He said, just look at what's happening in this prison. The rulers and authorities in the heavenlies are learning of God's wisdom. And in Ephesus, I can just exhort you from this prison to be one in Christ so that you can, you can glorify him. So don't cry for me. What I'm doing is worth doing. 
Again, look at 11 and 12, verses 11 and 12. This is happening according to God's eternal purpose. This is his purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, that in him and through faith in him, we can approach God with freedom and confidence. Now, with me saying this, you've got to tune in right now because the issue that faces us as church people here in the 21st century is what do you and I really, really value? I, I can imagine so many might be in church today who feel deeply discouraged because of the loss of something. It might have been a, a, a health report. It might be a, a lost friendship, somebody broken off from you. It might, might be money. Have you noticed the stock market the last two or three days sinking like a rock? Might be a can't find a job. It could be anything in this world. So what I want to say to you is thoroughly biblical, but it is also thoroughly countercultural. Deals with discouragement. So here I've written for you. I want you to see it, my brothers and sisters. Discouragement comes in this world when we lose the things we most desire. So the first question you should ask when you are discouraged is this, what am I really after in this world? If the main desire of your heart is God himself, then nothing will ever take him and his love away from you. See, when I read verse 13, I hear the heartfelt cry of a pastor who loves his people. He says, I ask you not to be discouraged. And that's my prayer for you as well, as your senior pastor. I, I ask you not to be discouraged. So the fundamental, <laughs> amen, so the fundamental question that you have to ask is, what am I really after in my life? See, it's, it will be the loss of those things we're really after that will really send us into discouragement. And sometimes the things we lose are really important things but they're not the eternal things. If, if what you mostly want God to do for you is to make you healthy, then he can do that, but I'll tell you, it's not gonna last forever. When you get sick again, as you will, if that's what you want and you lose that, you'll be discouraged. If you come to church and the main thing that you wanna trust Jesus for is that he'll give you a lot more money than you have, if you lose money, what's gonna happen? you'll be discouraged. Uh, if what you're really after in your life is, is a reputation or fame, uh, youthful looks, physical comfort in this world, any, anything like that, you'll be enslaved by your pursuit of those things and they will not last. When they're taken away, discouragement will come, but if your deepest desire is to know Jesus and to please Jesus and to be in the presence of Jesus. You'll be set free from discouragement. Those things cannot be taken from you. Even a prison cell can't do it. And Jesus died so that we can have that kind of eternal, eternal life. Thank you, and that does bring us to the communion table today, doesn't it? What a time, book of Ephesians. I just, what a great book to lead us to the communion table, to remember the death of Jesus, what happened because of the blood of Jesus. 
The blood of Jesus brings us to God and brings us into this fellowship and communion with one another. What what we're going to do today as we receive communion with one another is we're going to remember together these two things that unite us. (laughs) One, the, the humility that has come because we know that we desperately need forgiveness and mercy and grace. Anybody agree with that? Do you feel like that's you as well? So we share that. We are people who on our own have a desperate need of forgiveness and mercy and grace. On the other side, if you place your faith in Jesus, we share in fact that we found forgiveness and mercy and grace in Jesus. And our communion table declares that to all of us. When we receive it, we receive it together. Uh, we, we, we say, this is not just for the world. It is for me. But it's not just for me. It is for all who are here. Because of the blood of Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile are now have access into one family. So today we're going to remember what it cost to bring us to God and to one another and, and hopefully renew our own commitment to him. I wanted to do communion last week, so what I decided to do is to take us back again to last week's text and just put together several of these verses as we get ready for communion. Look at them with me. Now, Ephesians 2, 15 to 18. In Christ Jesus... All who trust in him have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. Will you say that with me? By the blood of Christ. Will you say it again? By the blood of Christ. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity and in one body to reconcile all of us to God through the cross. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. I'm going to ask our musicians to come or ask our stewards to come to the table. Visitors here, let me tell you how we do uh, communion here at Lake Avenue Church. It's the Lord's table. It's not ours. So if you know the Lord Jesus Christ and you are ready to follow him as your Lord, then, then come and receive the elements. But we all come from where we sit and, and take both the cup and the, and the bread and then we go back to our seats so that we can receive it together. If you cannot get up and come, our stewards will bring the elements out to you. Then on my far right, over here, your far left, for those who have gluten allergies, we have a table there for you as well. So as the music is being played, then come out and as you are ready to receive the elements and we'll receive them together. And as we prepare to do so, let me lead us in prayer. Father, we have seen this powerful part of your word Now we again will obey what Jesus told us to do so that we will not forget. We will remember the broken body of our Lord Jesus and the shed blood of Jesus that through the cross you have brought us to yourself and to one another. Deepen our gratitude deepen our own unity within this one body of Christ today as we celebrate communion in the name of Jesus. Amen.